0: You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 107 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. It's the last Sunday of the month. And as usual, we are going to listen to a pre-recorded talk, this time by Terence McKenna. This talk has been lifted from the Psychedelic Salon, which you can find at psychedelicsalon.com. And normally Terence talks a lot about psychedelics, but in this talk, his focus is on alchemy and the corpus hermeticum, which is a text that forms the basis for hermeticism. I actually like what he has to say about mercury, early on in the talk. But there is much more to get from everything Terence manages to cover in this talk about alchemy and the corpus hermeticum. So sit back, relax and enjoy.
1: Well, it is a small group and this was my intent uh, by focusing on the hermetic corpus and alchemy I've just gotten tired of talking about psychedelic drugs and always saying the same things over and over again. Nevertheless, it's a challenge to go outside my own bailiwick. I mean, I've had an interest in uh, hermeticism and alchemy since I was about 14 and read Jung's Psychology and Alchemy. And it opened for me the fact of the existence of this vast literature, uh, a literature that is very little read or understood in the modern context. The Jungians have made much of it, but to their own purposes, and uh, perhaps not always with a complete fidelity to the intent of the tradition. We'll talk a lot about the Jungian Approach, but there are other approaches uh, even uh, within the 20th century. Uh, I believe, since I don't have the catalog, I'm not absolutely certain, but I believe the catalog urged you to read Giordano Bruno and the Hermetic Tradition by Dame Frances Yates. And uh, this is, uh, uh, though Frances Yates' scholarship is very controversial, I think to get an overview of the landscape, her book is probably uh, the best single book between covers. It's not pleasing to some factions, and we can talk about that. I mean, we will probably discover within the group all the strains of alchemical illusion and delusion that have always driven the, uh, this particular intellectual engine but I thought to get one book uh, uh, that sort of covered the territory that was a good one to start with well then I found out it's very hard to get this book I didn't realize that because it's been sitting on my shelf for years Richard Byrd found a reprint at the Bodhi tree that I wasn't aware of this particular edition so um though probably none of you brought it with you in a heavily underlined form. If after this weekend you want to try and get it, uh, it is available. And if you can't get that edition, why uh, a good book search service can probably come up with the first edition, which is Rutledge, Keegan-Paul. I wouldn't hold a weekend like this simply to go over a body of ancient literature if I didn't think it had some efficacy or import for the modern dilemma. And some of you may know the song by the Grateful Dead uh, in which the refrain is, we need a miracle every day. I think any reasonable person can conclude that the redemption of the world, if it's to be achieved, can only be achieved through magic. It's too late for science. It's too late for hortatory politics. Well, it's very interesting. I mean, every ancient literature has its apocalypsus, And in the Hermetic literature, uh, there is a prophecy. I think it's in book two, but that really doesn't matter. Uh, And the prophecy is that a day will come when men will no longer care for the earth and at that day the gods will depart and uh, everything will be thrown into primal chaos and this prophecy was very strongly in the minds of the uh, strains of non-Christian thought that evolved at the close, the centuries of closure of the Roman Empire. When you look back into historical time, it's when you reach the first and second centuries after Christ that you reach a world whose psychology was very much like the psychology of our own time. It was a psychology of despair and exhaustion. This is because um, Greek science, which had evolved under the aegis of uh, uh, democracy and atomism and platonic metaphysics, had essentially come to a dead end in those centuries. We can debate the reasons why this happened uh, an obvious suggestion would be that it was because they failed to develop an experimental method. And so everything just dissolved into competing schools of philosophical speculation. And a profound pessimism spread through the Hellenistic world. And out of that pessimism... And in the context of that kind of universal despair which attends the dissolution of great empires, uh, a literature was created from the first to the fourth centuries after Christ, which we call the Hermetic Corpus, or in some cases, the Trismegistic Hymns. Now, this body of literature was misunderstood by later centuries, especially the Renaissance, because it was taken at face value and assumed to be at least contemporary with Moses, if not much older. So the, the Renaissance view of Hermeticism was based on a tragic misunderstanding of the true antiquity of this material. And there are people, hopefully none in this room, who still would have us believe that this literature antedates uh, uh, the Mosaic Law, that it is as old as dynastic Egypt. But this is an indefensible position from my point of view. In the early 16th century, uh, a father and son, Isaac and Marik Casabon, showed through the new science of philology that uh, this material was in fact late Hellenistic. Now, I've always said that I am not a classicist in the Viconian sense, in the sense that there is a certain strain of thought that always wants to believe that the oldest stuff is the best stuff. This is not the case to my mind. To my mind, what is amazing is how recent everything is. So I have no sympathy with the fans of Lost Atlantis or any of that kind of malarkey because to me what is amazing is how it all is less than 10,000 years old. Anything older than 10,000 years puts us into the realm of an a ceramic society relying on chipped flint for its primary technology. Um, what the... Hermetic corpus is is the most poetic and cleanly expressed outpouring of ancient knowledge that we possess. But it is it was reworked in the hands of these late Hellenistic peoples, and it is um, essentially a religion of the redemption of the earth. Through magic. It has great debt to a tradition called Sevian, which means to me Manichaeanism. And I'm sorry, Mandianism. And Mandianism was a a kind of proto Hellenistic gnosis that laid great stress on the power of life, Zoa, bios. And in that sense, it has a tremendously contemporary ring to it. We also are living in the twilight of a great empire. And I don't particularly mean the American empire. I mean the empire of European thinking created in the wake of... The Protestant Reformation and the rise of modern industrialism, the empire in short of science. Science has exhausted itself and become mere techni. It's still able to perform its magical tricks, but it has no claim on a metaphysic with any meaning because the program of rational understanding that was pursued by science has pushed so deeply into the phenomenon of nature that the internal contradictions of the method are now exposed for all to see. And uh, in discussing alchemy especially, we will meet with the concept of the coincidencia oppositorum, the union of opposites. This is an idea that is completely alien to science. It's the idea that nothing can be understood unless it is simultaneously viewed as both being what it is and what it is not. And in alchemical symbolism, we will meet uh, again and again symbolic expression of the coincidencia positorum. It may be in the form of a hermaphrodite. It may be in the form of the union of soul and luna. It may be in the form of the union of mercury with lead or with sulfur. In other words, alchemical thinking is thinking that is always uh, antithetical Always holds the possibility of, by a mere shift of perspective, its opposite premise will gain power and come into focus. I think it was John when we went around the circle mentioned his interest in shamanism. Uh, there's a wonderful book called *The Forge and the Crucible* by Mercierian, in which he shows that the shaman. ...is the brother of the smith. The smith is the metallurgist, the worker in metals. And this is where alchemy has its roots. In a sense, alchemy is older than the trismegistic corpus and then... It is also given a new lease on life by the philosophical underpinnings which the Corpus Hermeticum provides it. Alchemy, uh, the word alchemy, can be traced back to mean Egypt or a blackening. And in its earliest strata, it probably refers to techniques of dyeing, meaning the coloring of cloth, and gilding of metals and the forging and working of metal. I mean, we who take this for granted have no idea how mysterious and powerful this seemed to ancient people. And in fact, it would seem so to us if we had anything to do with it. I mean, how many of us are welders or casters of metal? It's a, it's a magical process to take, for instance, cinnabar, a red soft ore, and by the mere act of heating it in a furnace, it will sweat liquid mercury onto its surface. Well, we have unconsciously imbibed the ontology of science where we have mind firmly separated out from the world. We take this for granted. It's effortless because it's the ambiance of the civilization that we've been born into. But in an earlier age, and some writers would say a more naive age, but I wonder about that. But in an earlier age, mind and matter were seen to be alloyed together throughout nature so that the sweating of mercury out of cinnabar is not a material process. It's a process in which the mind and the observations of the metal worker maintain an important role. And let's talk for a moment about Mercury because uh, the spirit Mercurius is almost the patron deity of alchemy. You all know what mercury looks like. It's a at room temperature a silvery liquid that flows. It's like a mirror for the alchemists. And this is just a very short exercise in alchemical thinking. For the alchemists, mercury was mind itself in a sense. And by tracing through the, the uh, steps by which they reached that conclusion, you can have a taste of what alchemical thinking was about. Mercury takes the form of its container. If I pour mercury into a cup, it takes the shape of the cup. If I pour it into a test tube, it takes the shape of the test tube. This taking the shape of its container is a quality of mind, and yet here it is present in a flowing silvery metal. The other thing is, uh, Mercury is a reflecting surface. You never see Mercury. What you see is the world that surrounds it, which is perfectly reflected in its surface, like a moving mirror, you see. And then if you've ever, as a child, I mean, I have no idea how toxic this process is, but I spent a lot of time as a child hounding my grandfather for his hearing aid batteries, which I would then smash with a hammer and get the mercury out and collect it in little bottles and carry it around with me. Well, the wonderful thing about mercury is when you pour it out on a surface and it beads up, Then each bead of mercury becomes a little microcosm of the world, and yet the mercury flows back together into a unity. Well, as a child... You see, I didn't. I had not yet imbibed the assumptions and the ontology of science. I was functioning as an alchemist. For me, mercury was uh, this fascinating magical substance onto which I could project the contents of my mind. And a child playing with mercury is an alchemist, hard at work, no doubt about it. Well, so then. Uh, This is a phenomenon in the physical world and then mind is a phenomenon as in the Cartesian distinction which is between the res extensa and the res virens. This is the great splitting of the world into two parts. I remember Al Huang once said to me, we were talking about the yin-yang symbol and he said, you know, the interesting thing is not the yin or the yang The interesting thing is the S-shaped surface which runs between them. And that S-shaped surface is a river of alchemical mercury. Now, where the alchemists saw this river of alchemical mercury is in uh, the boundary between waking and sleeping. There is a place, not quite sleeping, not quite waking, And there, there flows this river of alchemical mercury where you can project the contents of the unconscious and you can read it back to yourself. Uh, This kind of thinking is confounding to scientific thought where the effort is always to fix everything into a given identity and a given set of uh, behaviors. Now, the other... Uh, Hermetic perception that is well illustrated by just thinking for a moment about Mercury is the notion, and this is central to all Hermetic thinking, of the microcosm and the macrocosm, that somehow the great world, the whole of the cosmos, is reflected in the mystery of man of man, meaning men and women. It's reflected in the mystery of the human mind-body interface. So, for an alchemist, it makes perfect sense to extrapolate from these internal, what we call, internal psychological processes to external processes in the world. That distinction doesn't exist for uh for the alchemist, and I tell you, the longer I live, the more convinced I am that this is just absolutely the truth. Our The myth of our society is the existential myth that we are cast into matter that we are lost in a universe that has no meaning for us, that we must make our meaning. This is what Sartre and all, and Kierkegaard, all those people are saying, that we must make our meaning. It, it reaches its most absurd expression in Sartre's statement that nature is mute. I mean, this is as far from alchemical thinking as you can possibly get. Because for the alchemist, nature was a great book, an open book to be read by putting nature through processes which revealed not only its inner mechanics, but the inner mechanics of the artifacts, the person working upon the material. In other words, uh, the alchemist. Well, in other, in other contexts, I've talked about uh, the importance of language and how our world is made of language. And part of the problem with understanding alchemy is that the language is slipping out of our reach. We are so completely imbued with the Cartesian categories of the res virens. The world of thought and the res extensa, the world of three dimensional space, and causality and uh, uh, the conservation of matter and energy and so forth. That in order to do more than carry out a kind of scholarship of alchemy, we have to create an alchemical language or a field in which alchemical language can take place. Uh, some of you may have been with me a couple of weeks ago at uh, in Malibu when Joan Halifax and I debated uh, the roots of Buddhism. And I think Joan deserves great credit for saying that Buddhism would never have taken root in America were it not for the psychedelic phenomenon, not that Buddhism is psychedelic. It, in fact, is fairly touchy about that. But Buddhism would have gotten nowhere in America had not psychedelics created a context for Buddhist language to take root. And I would wager that I would never have gotten to first base with proposing a weekend on alchemy at Esalen were it not understood that psychedelics have prepared people for the notion that mind and world can be poured together like mercury and sulfur like the sophic waters to create a new kind of understanding because otherwise modernity has fixed our minds in the categories of Cartesian rationalism. And so uh, I will not claim and do not, in fact, think it's so that there was anything overtly psychedelic in the sense of pharmacologically based about alchemy. Uh, When we look back through the alchemical literature, uh, there's very little evidence that it was uh, was, uh, uh, pharmacologically driven. Only when you get to the very last adumbrations of the alchemical impulse in someone like Paracelsus? Do you get the use of opium? And uh, of, But it is interesting that the great drugs of modern society were accidentally discovered by alchemists in their researches. A distilled alcohol is a product uh, of alchemical work and then, as I mentioned, opium uh, was very heavily used by the Paracelsian school. But what they possessed was uh, an ability to liquefy their mental categories and then to project the contents of the mind onto these processes and read them back. Now, this is what made alchemy so fascinating to the Jungian school, because the Jungians were discovering the unconscious, and they realized before the Jung's involvement with alchemy, the best material for uh, psychotherapy to work upon was dreams, uh, but dream and mythology, and these were the two uh, the two poles of the uh, data field that the discovery of the unconscious was working on. Well, then Jung had the prescience to realize that alchemy, which to that point, as the gentleman over here said, had been dismissed as a naive effort to turn base metals into gold. This is the First, fiction that you have to absolutely purge from your mind. The only alchemists that ever tried to turn base metals into gold were charlatans, the so called puffers, because they were called that not only for their exaggerated speech, but for their use of bellows to drive their fires. And alchemy has always had a core of true adepts. And then a surround of misguided souls and uh, outright con artists who were trying to change uh, uh, base metals into gold. Now it's interesting that science in its naivete in the 20th century has actually completed the program of pseudo-alchemy. Uh, you can, if you have a sufficiently powerful nuclear reactor, change lead into gold. I mean, the cost is staggering. It has no economic in- importance whatsoever, but it can be done by bombarding gold with a sufficient amount of uh, heavy heavy particles, I mean, lead. You can change it into, into gold. But this is not... Uh, what the original intent was. In fact, when we look at the history of 20th century science, we will see that in a way it's a misunderstanding of what the alchemical goals were to be. And one by one, it has done uh, these things that were uh, stated goals of the alchemists, except that the alchemists always spoke in similes, and in a secret control language that was symbolic. Okay, uh, now another point that was brought up was in going around the circle was the externalization of the soul. And uh, what we're trying to do is, in this weekend is study and talk about the idea of redeeming the world through magic. And how is this to be done? Well, the the philosopher's stone is a complex of ideas that no matter how you divide it, no matter how you slice it, it's very difficult to hold the pith essence of this concept. But what it really comes down to is the idea that spirit is somehow resident in matter in a, in a uh, very diffuse form, and that the goal of hermetic thinking and later alchemy is the concentration and redemption of this spirit a focusing of it, a bringing of it together. This is an idea that was common in the Hellenistic world, not only to Hermetic thinking, but also to Gnosticism. Gnosticism is the idea that somehow the pure, holy, real light of being was scattered through a universe of darkness and of... uh, Saturnine power and that the goal is by a process which we can call yogic or alchemical or meditative or moral slash ethical the light must be gathered and concentrated in the body and then somehow released and redeemed and all uh, esoteric traditions east and west talk about the creation of this body of light and we will not in this weekend talk very much about alchemy non-western alchemy Taoist alchemy and uh, Vedic alchemy but uh In those systems, too, the notion is about the creation of this vehicle of light. This is one metaphor for the externalization of the soul. The philosopher's stone is another. And I will challenge you to try to imagine what the achievement of the philosopher's stone would be like because it's in trying to think that way that you begin to dissolve the categories of the Cartesian trap. And so imagine for a moment an object, a material, which can literally do anything. It can move across categorical boundaries with no difficulty whatsoever. So what do I mean? I mean that if you possessed the Philosopher's Stone and you were hungry, you could eat it. If you needed to go somewhere, you could spread it out and sit on it and it would take you there. If you needed a piece of information, it would become the equivalent of a computer screen and it would tell you things. If you needed a companion, it would talk to you. In other words, if you needed to take a shower, you would hold it over your head and water would pour out of it. Now, you see, this is an impossibility. That's right. It's a coincidencia oppositorum. It is something which behaves like imagination and matter without ever doing damage to the ontological status of, of one or the other. Now, we, this sounds like you know pure pathology in a context of modern thinking because we expect things to stay still and be what they are and undergo the growth and degradation that is inimical to them. But no, the redemption of spirit and matter means the exteriorization of the human soul and the interiorization of the human body so that it is an image freely commanded in the imagination. Imagination. I think this is the first time I've used this word this evening. The imagination is central to the alchemical opus because it is literally a process which goes on in the realm of the imagination taken to be a physical dimension. And I think that uh, we cannot understand the history that lies ahead of us unless we think in terms of a journey into the imagination. We have exhausted the world of three-dimensional space. We are polluting it, we are overpopulating it, we are using it up. Somehow the redemption of the human enterprise lies in the dimension of the imagination. And to do that, we have to transcend the categories that we inherit from a thousand years of uh, science and Christianity and rationalism. And we have to re-empower and re-encounter the mind. And we can do this psychedelically, we can do it yogically, or we can do it alchemically and hermetically. Now, there is present in the world at the moment, um, or at least I like to think so, an impulse which I have named the Archaic Revival. It's, uh, what happens is that whenever a society really gets in trouble, and you can use this in your own life, when you really get in trouble, what you should do is say, what, what did I believe in the last sane moment that I experienced? and then go back to that moment and act from it, even if you no longer believe it. Now in the Renaissance, this happened. The the uh, scholastic universe dissolved. New classes, new forms of wealth, new systems of navigation, new scientific tools, made it impossible to maintain the fiction of the medieval cosmology. And there was a sense that the world was dissolving, good alchemical word, dissolving. And in that moment, uh, the movers and shakers of that civilization reached backwards in time to the last sane moment they had ever known and they discovered that it was classical Greece. And they invented classicism in the in the fifteenth and sixteenth century, the texts which had lain in monasteries in Syria and Asia Minor, forgotten and untranslated for centuries, were brought to the Florentine Council by people like Gemistus Pletho and others, and translated. And classicism was born: its laws, its philosophy, its aesthetics, and we are the inheritors of that tradition. But it is now, once again, exhausted. And our cultural crisis is much greater. It is global. It is total. It involves every man, woman, and child on this planet. Every bug, bird, and tree is caught up in the cultural crisis that we have engendered. Our ideas are exhausted, the ideas that we inherit out of Christianity and its half-brother science or its bastard child science. So what I'm suggesting is that an, an archaic revival needs to take place and it seems to be well in hand in the form of the revival of goddess worship and shamanism and partnership but notice that these things are old, 10,000 years or more old. But there was an unbroken thread that, however thinly drawn, persists right up to the present. So the idea of this weekend is to show the way back to the uh, high magic of the late Paleolithic. To show that there were intellectual traditions, there were minority points of view that kept the faith, that never allowed it to die. And to my mind, this alchemical, hermetic, Gnostic, Egyptian, Chaldean thread is the thread. And if we... uh, you know, unravel it with sufficient care and attention, then we can build a bridge from the otherwise nearly incomprehensible high magic of the late Paleolithic. We can get it as near to ourselves as John Dee, who died in 1604. We can discover that it's no further away from us than the beginning of the Thirty Years' War. And, uh, you know, for my money, after that, it gets pretty mucked up. I mean, after Eliaphas Levy, who's already waffling, I'm not very interested in the, in the occultism of the 17th, 18th, and 19th century. But it's not necessary because scholarship gives us the Chaldean oracles, the Trismegistic Hymns, uh, the library at Nag Hammadi, um, and so forth and so on. So uh, my impulse is to, in the most austere sense, repopularize, reintroduce this kind of thinking so that people can live it out. And then, step by step, we can evolve our language and evolve our understanding to make our way back to the garden, back to Eden. It's occurred to me recently, you know, it's said that Christ opened the doors to paradise. Yes, but he closed the doors to Eden. And paradise is a very airy place where everybody sits around on clouds strumming their lyres. I think what we want to do is make our way back To the alchemical garden. That's where our roots are. That's where meaning is. Meaning lies in the confrontation of contradiction. The coincidencia appositorum. That's what we really feel... Not these rational schemas that are constantly beating us over the head with the thou shalts and thou shoulds, but rather a recovery of the real ambiguity of being, an ability to see ourselves as at once powerful and weak, noble and ignoble, future-oriented, past facing. We each need to become Janus-faced and to incorporate into ourselves the banished contradictions of being that so haunt the uh, enterprise of science. We can leave that behind and when we do, we reclaim authentic being. And authentic being, make no mistake about it, is what alchemical gold really is. That's what they're talking about, authentic being. So that's uh, tonight. Right now what? We're lead, we're (laughs) We're Saturnine, and we'll talk about Saturn and uh, Pluto and all of that. Yes, we, uh, tomorrow we'll talk about the stages of the alchemical opus. And though the stages are many and multifarious, it all begins in what is called the negredo, the blackening, the depths of the leaden, saturnine, chaotic, fixed place. And that's where we have been left by science and modernity and so forth and so on. And that's where, that's where the alchemist loves to begin, that's where he then stokes, he or she stokes the furnace and begins the dissolutio et coagulatio that leads to the uh, appearance of the stone. <coughs> the place to begin, I think, is obviously with the question, who is Hermes Trismegistus? What are we talking about here? I mean, this sounds so incredibly exotic to people. Uh The Renaissance had the concept of what it called the Prescii Theologi. And if my Latin and Greek irritates you, you have to understand you're dealing with a boy from a coal mining town in Colorado. Mm -hmm. So uh, I do mangle these things. The Prescii Theologi were Orpheus, Moses, and primarily Hermes Trismegistus. Hermes Trismegistus was the primary uh, source from the point of view of the Renaissance of this whole mystery tradition. And um, you recall from last night's lecture that this is based on a misunderstanding. The Renaissance believed that uh, Hermes Trismegistus was older than Moses We know now, thanks to Isaac and Marik Cassavon, two philologists of the early 17th century, that definitely the Hermetic corpus was composed between the 1st and 2nd centuries after Christ. The method of the Cassavons was to examine the... uh, the philosophical language of the Corpus Hermeticum and show that there were words and phrases there that were post-Platonic and derivative from philosophers whose dates we have fully in hand. Now, if you go to an occult bookstore, you will find that to this day this error persists, there are people who still want to claim that this stuff is older than dynastic Egypt. Uh, there are even books available. I was in Shambhala a week ago, uh, claiming to teach you how to change lead into gold. Well, from my point of view, this just evokes a small and a small smile. Uh, the old errors persist. The puffers are still at it. Uh, but what Hermes Trismegistus is is a character uh, who appears in many guises in these hermetic dialogues. The, dialogue, the hermetic hymns are usually couched in the form of dialogues between Hermes and his son Thoth. And Thoth takes the role of the uninitiated ingenue who is sitting at the feet of the master, and Thoth asks questions. What is the true nature of the world? What is the true nature of man? And Hermes answers, and the general uh, form of these texts, with exceptions, because there are 20 of them, is an intellectual dialogue which builds to an ecstatic revelation and then in the wake of the ecstatic revelation, there is a hymn of praise to, uh, to uh, Hermes Trismegistus. Trismegistus means thrice blessed and is sometimes called Hermes Triplex to distinguish this Hermes from all the other Hermes of of early, middle, and late Greek thinking. Hermes is, of course, the messenger god, the god of scribes. The reason this ibis-headed being holding a staff is embossed on the cover of each of these books is because this is how uh, Hermes, Trismegistus, Thoth Hermes... Uh, was imagined. He was associated with the scribe god of the Egyptian pantheon. The two distinguishing factors at least that stand out for me that I think you need to incorporate into your thinking about uh, the Hermeticism two very important concepts. The first is the divinity of human beings an extraordinarily radical idea in the context of late Hellenistic thinking we all operate on under the spell of the concept of the fall of man that man is an inferior being errors were made in the Garden of Eden and that we are far far from the nature of divinity. All magic, and all magic in the West is derivative from this tradition, takes the position that man is a divine being. Men and women are divine beings. The Corpus Hermeticum actually refers to man as God's brother. And this is a double-edged perception. It gives tremendous dignity to the human enterprise, but it also raises the possibility of the error of pride and hubris. In the Renaissance, Marcello Ficino boiled this notion down to the aphorism, man is the measure of all things. And you may notice that this is the position really of science, that man is the measure of all things, that it is up to us, we can decide the course of the cosmos. All magic stems from this position. This is why the church was so concerned to stamp out magic, because it assigns man an importance that the church would rather reserve uh, to deity, So that's the first great division between Christian thinking and hermetic thinking, an entirely different conception of what human beings are. And when we get into the text, I'll read you some of these passages. Now, the second distinguishing factor, and notice that this position on man empowers tremendous freedom. Man is the measure of all things. The second... Uh, distinguishing factor uh, in Hermeticism is the belief that we can control fate, that we can escape from cosmic fate. The late Hellenistic mindset was, and what you get in the Gnostics, is the belief that because of astrology, because of the stars, we are subject to control from these exterior forces. In, in most Gnostic thinking, the whole concern is to somehow evade what is called the hemarmony, cosmic fate. Uh, and in the Gnostic systems, the only way it can be done is by ascending through the shells of cosmic ordering forces, the archons, the planets, the planetary demons, so forth and so on, and then beyond the hemarmony, which is actually thought of as a a place in space that you burst through, you transcend fate. What the hermetic thought is, is that these fates become personified as the decans, as the stellar demons. And then it is held that there is a magic, a magical system which is possible where you can call these archangels to your side and work with them and not be subject to the inevitable working of the cosmic machinery. And this burst like a revelation over the late Hellenistic world because there was such philosophical and emotional and political exhaustion that this comes, this is a counterpoise to the message of the the New Testament, which is a similar message, you know, that you can be saved in the body, that you can escape the inevitable uh, dissolution and degradation laid upon us by time. So these are the two distinguishing factors, the divinity of man And the possibility of using magic to evade the machinery of fate. So I want to read some of the uh, Corpus Hermeticum to you to give you the flavor of it. Uh, But before I do, I want to say something about the history of these texts. You're all familiar, more or less, I'm sure, with Apuleius' The Golden Ass, which is a novel of initiation that is late Roman. Apuleius also um, put together what is called the Asclepius. And the Asclepius is true hermetic literature that was not lost. It was the only one that was available throughout the Dark and Middle Ages. Uh, all the rest was lying untranslated in, uh, in Syrian uh, monasteries, until Gemistus Pletho in 1490 uh, brought these manuscripts to Florence, to the court of the de Medicis, and then the translation project began. Now, the only other hermetic material that was accessible throughout the High Gothic period uh, was a book of magic called Picatrix. Picatrix. And the Picatrix was probably written in the 1200s, although this elicits screams of dissent from the burning-eyed faction. Uh, but reason dictates that we consider Picatrix 12th century. So only the Asclepius and the Picatrix represented this strain of thought before uh, the 1460s. And the importance of Hermetic thinking can be seen by the fact that Gemistus Pletho brought Plato. To the Florentine Council, as well as Hermes Trismegistus. And when Marcello Ficino sat down to do this translation work, Cosimo de' Medici said, Plato can wait. I'm getting old. You you do the hermetic corpus first. That's much more important. We'll sort out this Plato business in a few years. And so it was done. And the complete, it was uh, completed in 1493, and in 1494, Cosimo died. So he never saw the translations of Plato, but felt that uh, the corpus hermeticum was more important. Just I mention this to show you the, the importance that was uh, attached to this stuff. Here is the, one of the key passages on man's nature. This is from Book One of the Corpus Hermeticum. But mind the Father of all, he who is life and light, gave birth to man, a being like to himself. And he took delight in man as being his own offspring, for man was very goodly to look on, bearing the likeness of his Father. With good reason then did God take delight in man for it was God's own form that God took delight in and man and God delivered over to man all things that had been made this is the basis of the hacenian statement man is the measure of all things and man took station in the maker's sphere and observed the things made by his brother who was set over the region of fire. And having observed the maker's creation in the region of fire, he willed to make things for his own part also. And his father gave permission, having in himself all the working of the administrators. This is a reference to the angel hierarchy. And, having in him, and the administrators took delight in him and each of them gave him a share of his own nature. So man is the brother of God and a creature at home with the angels. Um, This idea is echoed in the Asclepius, which you'll recall was available throughout the Middle Ages. Um, The range of man is yet wider than that of the demons, meaning the angels. This term is... Uh, you know transposable in hermetic thought the individuals of the humankind are diverse and of many characters they like the demons come from above and entering into fellowship with other individuals they make for themselves many and intimate connections with almost all other kinds and then the famous passage man is a marvel then Asclepius "'Honor and reverence to such a being. "'Man takes on him the attributes of a god "'as though he were himself a god, "'and he is familiar with the demon kind, "'for he comes to know that he is sprung "'from the same source as they, "'and strong in the assurance of that in him which is divine. "'He scorns the merely human part of his own nature.' How far more happily blended are the properties of man than those of other beings. He is linked to the gods inasmuch as there is in him a divinity akin to theirs. He scorns that part of his own being which makes him a thing of earth, and all else with which he finds himself connected by heaven's ordering, he binds to himself by the tie of his affection. So this is a incredibly radical conception of what it means to be human. So radical that it is unwelcome even in the present context. Notice the modern feeling of this stuff. I mean, this is not biblical rhetoric. This is philosophical discourse as we know it and carry it out ourselves. This is a passage on the adept and initiation. Now this is, uh, let me see who's speaking here. Uh, Thoth speaks to Paimandres. This is book one. But tell me this too, said I. God said, let the man who has mind in him recognize himself. But have not all men mind, mind, And then Parmandres replies, O man, said mind to me, speak not so. I, even mind, come to those men who are holy and good and pure and merciful, and my coming is a succor to them, and forthwith they recognize all things and win the Father's grace by loving worship and give thanks to him, praising and hemming him with hearts uplifted to him in Filial affection, again the reference to being God's brother, in filial affection. And before they give up the body to the death which is proper to it, they loathe the bodily senses, knowing what manner of work the senses do. Now, this introduces the theme of uh, asceticism that like, <clears throat> excuse me, like the Gnostics, uh, there is a, uh, in much of the Hermetic literature a kind of horror of the earth, a desire to ascend and to get away from it. Um, Scott makes the distinction between what he calls pessimistic Gnosis and optimistic gnosis. And within the 20 texts of the Corpus Hermeticum, you get vacillation on this point. In some cases, the Mandaean, the, the Sebian tendency is there, and the world soul is invoked, and the whole of creation is seen as a living being involved in this soteriological process, this process of salvational mechanics through magic. In other texts, this Gnostic horror of matter is very strongly stressed. It's very clear that uh, that the, the Hellenistic mind was ambivalent on this point, even as we are ambivalent on this point. I mean, it's a real question. Are we here to be the caretakers of the earth or are we strangers in the universe and is our task to return to a forgotten and hidden home, no trace of which can be found in the Saturnine world of matter? It's very hard to have it both ways. Uh, You're going to have to sort of take a position on that. And these people were forced into the same dilemma. There's no middle ground between those two positions. And, and so that, that uh, dichotomy, that conundrum, haunted a, a lot of, uh, of hermetic thinking. Here is uh, the hermetic creation myth. Uh, this is book three, paragraphs one through a few, And you will see the comparison, the the similarities to uh, to the Christian creation myth, but with extraordinary differences. There was darkness in the deep, and water without form. And there was a subtle breath, intelligent, which permeated the things in chaos with divine power. Then, when all was yet undistinguished and unwrought, there was shed forth holy light, and the elements came into being. All things were divided one from another, and the lighter things were parted off on high, the fire being suspended aloft so that it rose unto the air, and the heavier things sank down, and sand was deposited beneath the watery substance, and the dry land was separated out from the watery substance and became solid, and the fiery substance was articulated with the gods therein, and heaven appeared with its seven spheres, and the gods visible in starry forms with all their constellations, and heaven revolved and began to run its circling course, ...riding upon the divine air. And each god, by his several power, set forth that which he was bidden to put forth. And there came forth four-footed beasts, and creeping things, and fishes, and winged birds, and grass, and every flowering herb... ...all having seed in them according to their diverse natures. For they generated within themselves the seed by which their races should be renewed and then it goes on to describe the birth of man. Now, this kind of thinking is what alchemy seized upon in its uh, ambitions. In a way, one way of thinking about what alchemy came to attempt is the thinking went like this. Since man is God's brother, the purpose of man is to intercede in time. And it was believed that ores, precious metals, uh, and things like this grew in the earth. It was a thoroughgoing theory of evolution that reached right down into the organic realm. So it was thought that uh, gold um, deposits in the earth would actually replenish themselves over time and it's passages like this uh, that give permission for that kind of thinking in line with that uh, we're now in book four and remember the tone changes slightly from book to book they were after all uh, written over a 300 year period by various people Um, you must understand then that God is pre-existent and ever-existent, ever-existent, and that he alone made all things and created by his will the things that are. And when the creator had made the ordered universe, he willed to set in order the earth also. He willed to set in order the earth also. And so he sent down man, a mortal creature, made in the image of an immortal being, to be an embellishment of the divine body. For it is man's function. Here it comes. The purpose of man. For According to book four. For it is man's function to contemplate the works of God. And for this purpose he was made. That he might view the universe with wondering awe. And come to know its maker. Man... ...has this advantage over all other living beings... ...that he possesses mind and speech. Now, speech, my son, God imparted to all men... ...but mind he did not impart to all. Not that he grudged it to any... ...for the grudging temper does not start from heaven above... ...but comes from being here below... ...in the souls of those men who are devoid of mind... This introduces the concept of, the, of an elect or a perfecti, a, a hierarchy of human of human accomplishment and understanding. And this is also basic to Gnosticism. It's not for everyone. They're saying it's for the pure of heart. And then what pure of heart means depends on the school you're looking at. You know, for some it was mathematical accomplishment. For others, it was contact with the logos. For others, it was an ability to resist the temptations of the senses. But there was always this sense of the higher and lower possibility within the human experience. Everybody with me so far? This is at the opening of book 12, and this is a book with a heavy uh, Mandayan. Sensitivity, this sensitivity to life. Now this whole cosmos... And notice how this transcends even the Buddhist point of view because in Buddhism plants have no soul. This is a tremendous failure in the Buddhist conception as far as I'm concerned. Uh, okay, this is uh, book, uh, book 12. Now this whole cosmos, which is a great God and an image of him who is greater and is united with him and maintains its order in accordance with that will, is one mass of life, and there is not anything in the cosmos, nor has been through all time from the first foundation of the universe, neither in the whole, nor among the several things contained in it that is not alive. There is not, and has never been, and never will be in the cosmos anything that is dead. For it was the Father's will that the cosmos, as long as it exists, should be a living being, and therefore it must needs be a God also. How then, my son, could there be dead things in that which is a God, in that which is an image of the Father, in that which is one mass of life? Deathness is corruption, and corruption is destruction, How then can any part of that which is incorruptible be corrupted or any part of that which is a god be destroyed? And there are other passages. Um, This is a good one. This is uh, book 18. For as the sun, who nurtures all vegetation also gathers the first fruits of the produce with his rays, "...as it were with mighty hands, plucking the sweetest odors of the plants, even so we too, having received into our souls, which are plants of heavenly origin, the efflux of God's wisdom, must in return use his service for all that springs up in us." Now this conception that the human soul is a plant is a a unique idea. I don't know of another tradition. Uh, Those of you who were with us in Ojai, we heard Johannes Wilber talk about uh, how among the Amazon Indians, the Warao, the men actually marry trees. Mm -hmm. They actually take trees as their wives. A tree, and it is a man's job throughout his life to take care of this tree with the same tenderness and attention that he lavishes on a living wife. This is a more radical conception than that. This is the conception that the most important part of us is a plant. It it reminds me of the joke that I occasionally make in these groups, uh, the notion that Animals are something invented by plants to carry them from place to place? Well, according to this, uh, that's right on. So uh, the, the sensitivity to the vegetative nature of the world is so great that it raises the plant to be the pith essence, the soul of man, the brother of God. So you see the valuation of the vegetative universe here is of an extremely radical type and that that nothing is predetermined uh, in the hermetic system because through magic we can overcome the energies of cosmic fate. This is the great good news of, of hermeticism that we are not subject to fate. Uh, We should probably talk a little about this Logos concept. Uh, This is something which seems very alien to modern people unless they are psychedelically sophisticated. The Logos was the sine qua non of Hellenistic religion. And what it was was an informing voice that spoke in your head or your heart, wherever you want to put it, and it told you the right way to live. You get this idea even in the later Old Testament where uh, it's said that uh, the truth of the heart is, can be known. That, if, that it is no great dilemma to know good from evil. You simply inquire of your heart, is it good or evil? And you will discover a, a voice which will tell you. And and all the great thinkers of this Greco-Hellenistic period uh, sought and cultivated the Logos. Plato had his demon. Everyone sought the informing voice of the noose that's what it's called in neoplatonism and then in hermeticism i mean in and in hermeticism and then in gnosticism the logos now uh for modern people well no for me the only way i've ever had this experience is in the presence of psychedelic substances and then it is just crystal clear there is no ambiguity about it somehow It's possible for an informing voice to come into cognition that knows more than you do. It is a connection with the collective unconscious, I suppose, that is convivial, conversational, and just talks to you about uh, uh, the nature of being in the world and the nature of your being in the world. Uh, It's puzzling to us because it seems so remote I mean for us a voice in the head or the heart is pathology and uh, You may know the famous story of uh, In the first century uh, Some fishermen were off the shore of the island of Argos in the Mediterranean Sea and they heard a great voice from the sky and the voice said great Pan is dead great Pan is dead well people like Lactantius and Eusebius these patristic fathers the people who built Christianity who took the gospels and turned it into a world religion they took this annunciation from the sky of the death of Pan as the annunciation of the change of the aeon In other words, by the aeon, I mean these 2,000-year, roughly 2,000-year periods that are associated with the equinoctial precession. Do you all understand how this works? That over 26,000 years, the heliacal rising of of the solsticeal sun slips slowly, slowly from one house to another, And around A.D. 100, I mean, there's argument because these things are never precise, but around A.D. 100, the age of Pisces began, and the previous aeon ceased, and the cosmic machinery, the great gears of the largest scale of the cosmic machinery clicked past a certain point and into the age of Pisces. And this was then taken as um, very fortuitous for Christianity because Christ was associated with the sign of the fish and was seen as a Piscean movement. But I believe that it's entirely possible that the Logos at that moment, that rough moment in time, fell silent, and that it has been silent for 2,000 years. And what we have had then is the exegesis of text and, uh, you know, noetic archaeology of the sort we're carrying on here. But that now in and a phenomenon as, as trivial and, and hyponted as channeling can be seen as the reawakening of the logos. The long night of Piscean silence. Is ending, and the spirit of nous is again moving in the world, speaking in the minds of the adepts and the hierophants who have uh, the techniques and the will to connect with this stuff. I don't know how I got off on that, but obviously, this kind of literature can be seen as the last message from the fading logos. The, the last statements before uh, the change of the aeon have rendered this control language uh, very difficult and non-intuitive and somewhat incomprehensible.
0: The thing that really sticks out for me in this talk is when he quotes the Corpus Hermeticum and the part where it says that nothing is dead. And uh, I agree with this. ...that everything in the world is alive. Even the chair I'm sitting in. And it might sound like a crazy idea... ...but um, if you've seen what I've seen... ...it's not that crazy. But let's let's hear that that uh, bit I'm talking about again.
1: Now this whole cosmos... ...which is a great God and an image of him who is greater... ...and is united with him... ...and maintains its order in accordance with that will... ...is one mass of life, and there is not anything in the cosmos, nor has been through all time from the first foundation of the universe, neither in the whole nor among the several things contained in it that is not alive. There is not, and has never been, and never will be in the cosmos anything that is dead."
0: Now we are going to listen to opus 1 in F-sharp minor by Station Approach from an album called Noodlings, And you can check out more at sha- chasingfoxes.bandcamp.com And also have a look at wordshaveedges.bandcamp.com Which is the same artist. And uh, all the links will be in the program notes on NaturalBornAlchemists.com. And don't forget to check out the podcast on Facebook and Twitter. Freedom is in the mind.